what Labour was asking the electorate to do was effectively making them choose between democracy and prosperity. I think it's safe to assume that in the next five years the Conservative Party is going to do little to nothing to tackle climate change. But, you know, at the same time they'll claim that they are, as they always do. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. Yes, and this is Steve with Macron Cheese. Today, I have Patricia Pino, who is a longtime friend of mine, and she's also co-host of the phenomenal podcast, the MMT Podcast. Hi. She is in the UK, and I want to say one thing right up front. They have one of the best podcasts I've ever heard between her and Christian Riley. It is always a joy to listen to them. So it's my pleasure to bring her on today, and with that, Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're making me blush there. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, listen. So this whole Brexit thing, you know, obviously this is not happening in the U.S., but it kind of is. And I think that, you know, one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring you on here, aside from I just like talking to you, is that we have this opportunity to maybe head off some of the lessons that you all experienced as labor in the U.K., and maybe look at the parallels between what's happened in the UK and then what's happening in the United States, be able to try to find a way to, you know, do our little small part of mitigating a disaster on a global level here. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened in the UK here recently. So to begin with, it's very complicated. Okay. There are various layers to this. There are economic layers. There are issues of democracy. There are, you know, historical problems that have been ignored for some time. And there are also cultural issues kind of just all kind of making a big layer cake and it's a big mess. And I know there are parallels with the US for sure, but I think here the issues of sovereignty and issues of national identity, perhaps I'm going to venture into saying that may play an even stronger role here than they do over in the US, partly because you guys are not in the EU and because you haven't gone through that transition of joining something of what the EU represents, which is the continued abandonment of the nation state and going into more of presumably what it was, you know, a group of nations, but in reality it's worked out differently. Well, you know, I guess that's a great intro to this. What I'd like to know is, you know, we went into this election, folks in the US 
incredibly highly of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. Um, there was tremendous affinity for the Bernie Sanders movement and the Jeremy Corbyn movement. We oftentimes blended the two together, probably erroneously to some extent, but there was a lot of similarities there. The democratic socialism that we have been fighting for in the U.S. was being fought for in the U.K. And for all intents and purposes, you know, people around the world that were fighting for democratic socialism were looking to the U.K. and saying, please let this happen. And instead of it happening, what you have is a total meltdown, a fiasco. And you've got Boris Johnson and his Tories sweep the day and literally knock out tons and tons and tons of not just progressives, but the more centrist third way type labor. Mm-hmm. Walk us through this, lay the seeds out for this. It is complicated. So let's break it down. So I think it's important to say that there are a lot of people out there in the aftermath of what happened. The Labour Party is in shock a little bit and they're all trying to make sense of it. And sadly, some voices are more dominant than others. And the voices that are dominant will also be the less likely to admit fault. And it so happens that, you know, a lot of blame is being placed on Jeremy Corbyn as well. And I actually think, I'm not saying he's perfect, but I actually think Jeremy Corbyn wanted to avert to a great extent, the disaster that just happened. And he actually had more foresight than others in the party. He started from a position, well, as you know, Jeremy Corbyn has also always been Eurosceptic. And when the membership elected him with great enthusiasm, they weren't necessarily Eurosceptic membership, but they knew that about Jeremy Corbyn and they accepted it. But when it came to the EU referendum, the EU referendum was brought about by the Tory party. So it was immediately framed as a right-wing project. What had happened, of course, which is what all history will tell us happens often, is that sections of the right had actually tapped into a discontent that belonged to marginalized sections of society. And they were exploiting that in allegiance, of course, with other, you know, non-working class, very well-off people who actually wanted to have the power to turn the UK into this kind of neoliberalism on a steroids kind of project. So they were kind of in an alliance, but what they did do was tap into the sentiment. And it was a sentiment that Jeremy Corbyn understood because of his scepticism. He understood, for example, there are interviews of him where he's actually predicting the levels of unemployment that the Eurozone would cause. He was very close to Tony Benn, who for many, many years spoke about the EU as an imperialist project, as a project that was taking democracy away. And so all these things he understood very well, probably better than most people in the Labour Party, both in the Parliamentary Labour Party and in the membership. But when the EU referendum came in, I don't think he was in a strong position in the sense that the Parliamentary Labour Party wanted to get rid of him really badly. So I believe, I'm speculating here, but I believe Jeremy Corbyn thought, if I turn against my membership and campaign to leave the EU, they will not support me anymore. And, you know, I'll be betraying them because this is what they want. So I should do what they want. And if I want to stay leader, then I have to listen to what they want. And to some extent as well, it was kind of, people thought Remain would win, right? So what's the point of taking a chance on a position that is likely to lose, which is being pro-Brexit. So to me, that marked the first error 
in a long chain of events that led to this disaster. This has always brought a question mark to me in a representative democracy mm-hmm. where you have a leader and that leader is held accountable for decisions that are made. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're expected to represent the will of the people. Yeah. And so when you represent the will of the people and the will of the people goes terribly wrong, he's accountable for the will of the people. Yeah. But if he would have gone rogue, he would have lost support. And so it's a real no-win situation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn had to balance what the Labour supporters wanted, you know, the wider voters. He had to balance what the Labour Parliamentary Labour Party wanted and against also what the membership wanted. One of the things that kind of strikes me, you know, is the attacks that went against Corbyn as anti-Semite and all the other low blow, really vile fights against him as a human being, Mm -hmm. not just as a politician, but as a person. I mean, dirty, filthy, socialist. Yeah, it was absolutely vicious. Yeah. It was horrible. And you look at that and you say, wow, what is it about this small island nation that would have so much pent up hatred for a man trying to give them services. I mean, is the nation ridiculously wealthy to the person or or it makes no sense. So what is it about the nation itself that breeds such contempt for such a man that's trying in my mind is so hard to bring about a society that would benefit all of them. I think this is where we go a little bit into cultural issues. The attacks on Jeremy Corbyn were done very systematically to portray him as somebody who wasn't loyal to the UK and, you know, perceived as somebody who was a security threat to the UK, who would give, you know, secrets away, who would, oh God, not press the nuclear button. Oh my God, horrific that he wouldn't dare kill other people in that way in defense of the nation. Um, this notion as well that immigrants had to have a decency and and we had to care for their lives in as much as we care for British lives. There was a group to which that was immensely kind of offensive, that notion. It wasn't said explicitly, but it was implied. And that played a big role. If you see all the attacks that were done on him, most of them were on that basis. And the anti-Semitism attacks The underlying premise of the anti-Semitism attacks was, of course, that there is a hierarchy of racism and the Tory party is racist in all sorts of ways, but that's forgiven. But if Jeremy Corbyn is even perceived, there is no, this is the thing, there's nothing Jeremy Corbyn has said explicitly that would indicate to anyone that he has a drop of racism in his body. And yet it's implied or by association, you know, he's constantly drip feeding this kind of idea that he supports the views of others close to him uh, that may be controversial in that sense and, and then slowly framing him as anti-Semitic. And that played a part as well. But the underlying message was that there was a hierarchy of racism and that Jeremy Corbyn was, you know, trespassing through the worst kind of racism possible. Which is bizarre, okay? It's bizarre because Jeremy Corbyn is like, the same as Bernie Sanders, the best, the biggest campaigner, anti-racism campaigner, politician that we know in recent times, really, is crazy. So tell me, what about Remain played on the neoliberal mindset? What about the EU? And more important, let's go back for a second for people that maybe are not familiar 
with that whole arrangement. Mm-hmm. Can you take us through a quick crash course in what it means to be a part of the EU, the Eurozone, and the Euro, and what the whole Brexit story itself represented? Because I think that just in and of itself, the term Brexit was a highly successful marketing campaign. Everybody knows the word. I just don't think it's well understood. So there are various narratives <laughs> about what the EU is and what is meant to represent. The preferred one by Remainers is that the EU project was made to keep peace in Europe. And they see this as an inherent force of good across Europe of unity and collaboration. But collaboration, I mean, to me, means something very different to what the EU actually does in practice, which is more like coercion in the interests of no citizens in particular, simply, you know, in a very, it's run in a very undemocratic way. And the people who run the EU run it solely in the interest of the EU project in itself, as opposed to in the interest of any particular group of citizens or their well-being. But to Remainers, there is an inherent fear that if the EU falls apart, then Europe will go to war. And I mean, I'd say that's a valid fear. But at the same time, I see how the EU is being run at the moment. If you know what happened in Greece, if you know what's happening in Italy, you know how people are feeling more and more helpless because their ability to run the economy in their interest is being taken away from them more and more then you see that that's actually causing division across Europe and that's causing the rise of the far right and that's causing people to turn against migrants and, you know, creates this kind of environment of scarcity and people turn against each other and societies fracture all over the seams. So I see the EU and I don't see peace. But for a group of people who have benefited from the EU quite a lot, you know, mostly people who live in cities like myself, London, Dorset is a city that has benefited enormously from EU membership. They don't see that. They almost turn a blind eye to the EU's internal problems. They don't call that war. To them, that doesn't count as violence, you know, and it's only the fracture of the European Union that concerns them. When I look at Europe, I don't see war. <laughs> I really don't. And maybe it's because I'm so far removed. When I see the United States, all I see is war. Really? So for me, you know, I'm looking at this. <laughs> In what way? What kind of war are we talking about in Europe? A war of chess? <laughs> or are we talking about hooligans rallying against soccer matches? What kind of violence are we talking about? For real? I mean, like, I understand the austerity violence. Yeah. That's the one that I would. Well, that, that's the one, obviously, that you and I care about a lot. But we also have things like the yellow vests in France that have been campaigning for quite some time, and they've been met with quite severe response from Macron's police and the French military. And nobody says anything about what's happening there. It's barely covered on the media. That doesn't count as kind of brutality against people because they said we don't show it because they don't want to instigate that happening in other places. But at the same time, they don't give enough coverage to that compared to violence in other places like what you've seen. I presume that when you say violence in America, you mean a lot of the brutality of the police towards racial minorities. That and our imperialistic 
approach to foreign policy. <laughs> ah, right. Let's go ahead and blow the nation up before we figure out whether we were right or, oops, sorry. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be shoot first, ask questions later is the United States MO these days. And yeah, I look at Europe and I say to myself, you know, what's going on? I want to redirect this slightly because in Europe, there's several different ways of carving this up. And this is something that I think is also not well understood. And that is that there are certain nations that adopted the euro as their currency. Mm -hmm. They gave up monetary sovereignty. That did not happen with the UK. UK maintained the pound. However, they did open up their borders, so to speak, to basically a free trade agreement, if you will, yeah. with this European Union. Am I misunderstanding that or is that a correct statement? No, that is true. We have our own currency, so we have more autonomy than other European nations do. However, I think it's wrong, and I think Bill Mitchell would probably say so, that the EU doesn't work as an external force, you know, telling Britain how to run its affairs. In here, it has been mostly kind of a double act between government and the EU. It has allowed UK governments to portray neoliberal policies as if they were mandated or a part of international commitments and therefore cannot be challenged or simply as a technocracy issue. So it has happened, for example, that the UK is not required to fulfill, for example, the deficit criteria of 3%, which, as you know, is something that they inflict on other countries in the Eurozone pretty strictly. but. Whenever the UK has gone over the 3% limit, the UK has signed up to an agreement that says that they will endeavor to keep the deficit below 3%. So whenever it does exceed it, it has received communications from the EU saying, oh, you're being naughty, you're going over the limit. And they demand then plans for the government for plans on how they plan to reduce that. So they may not force the UK, they have no means of enforcing these rules, but at the same time, it allows them to exert enough political pressure to then direct policy in a certain direction and to provide cover for neoliberal governments here to then not claim responsibility for unpopular policies. And that has influenced UK policy. I think it would be unfair to say that it hasn't had an influence over UK policy. For example, I believe the Maastricht Treaty that talks about the deficit restriction was signed in 92. Later in the same year, the PFI, the Private Finance Initiative, which is about getting the private sector to finance healthcare in the UK, started. So one fed into the other. And I think that's how it works here mostly as a double act, as opposed to as a foreign entity forcing the UK to act in a particular way. Very good. So let's go to the next step. Okay. Now that you have basically seen the destruction of what was the Labour Party, and you've got five years now of Tory rule. Mm. What do you expect will be the outcome of this? Do you think people that went that route are going to regret it, or do you think they're going to be grateful they did it? Talk about the impacts of that election. It's immensely sad, you know, because... Of course, you and I know that people are not necessarily aware of how currencies work. They don't necessarily know how damaging austerity is to the economy. 
or to people's lives in general. They don't understand necessarily how those two things are connected. They're becoming more and more aware, partly due to MMT, but also because it's just impossible to hide. I think a lot of people lent the Tories the vote because Labour was perceived to be blocking Brexit. And to the people that I've spoken to who are not naive and who understand what the Tory party stands for, a lot of them abstained because they found that the Labour Party's promises of prosperity and a manifesto as radical as it was and as good as it was meant nothing if the Labour Party could not show that it respected majoritarian vote in the referendum. So their position was mostly, if you don't respect my vote, then why should I vote for you? And why should I believe that you're actually going to do these things that you're promising to do? Democracy came first to them. And that was a principled position in a very, I don't say this in a happy way because I know the price that is going to be paid for this. But just thinking about the next five years is enough to make anyone depressed. But they did it because they wanted to stand for something. They wanted to stand for their right of their vote being valued and respected. And to them, that meant more than food, than a job, than money, or than public services, or than an NHS even. We have that exact scenario in the United States right now when Bernie Sanders conceded to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and we watched the shattering of the progressive movement as the more libertarian strain broke off and started supporting people like Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. Mm-hmm. We don't really have meaningful plans for addressing these big concerns, but they attack, they have the good one-liners And they have the real good punches in the mouth against the establishment. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea here that because they're willing to call out these bad actors, these bad neoliberals, which, I mean, who doesn't respect that? It's great. Mm -hmm. Love it, right? But that's the beginning and the ending of how their real value to this campaign is. But unfortunately, when you have a splintered movement, It's very difficult to build the kind of momentum that you need to be able to overcome these things. So you're watching some very similar type things with this principled approach. I won't support Bernie because Bernie endorsed Hillary. He didn't call out the DNC corruption. He didn't fight back against Russiagate. He didn't this, he didn't that. And some of these were political decisions in terms of trying to gain a majority would I like him to always say exactly what I want him to say? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to be the case. And he's given us 40 years of proving that. So I wonder sometimes if people realize what is at stake when they make these kind of, you call it principled, I call it myopic. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a moment in time there where you should be able to see clearly the, the cause and effect, the cost benefit of a certain move. And I think that there's almost like a arms folded, stomping the foot, sticking their tongue out kind of thing. And I don't mean to belittle this, but it does start feeling like there's, it is like that. 
it's almost ridiculous. And I'm trying very hard not to be too demeaning, but at the same time, though, it's very frustrating to see that. And there's so much at stake. And yet, bam, here you go. The splintering of a movement. And it assured the Tories would win in the UK. And I'm quite afraid that it will assure a second term for Trump in the United States as the Democrats fat finger their way through an impeachment proceeding that was ill-advised to say the least because it took the focus off a green new deal. It took the focus off of free college. It took the focus off of all these life-saving programs, Medicare for all, you name it. And it has put it squarely on the guy they're just trying to get rid of. And in fairness, these myopic moments are even more difficult to swallow with the knowledge of modern monetary theory and with the knowledge of what we could do if we just kept the focus on the right things. Yeah. I imagine it's maddening for you in the UK as well. I mean, it is. And we all come from different backgrounds, right? And I try as much as I can to understand perspectives from a form of living that I'm very unfamiliar with. Obviously, I'm a city person and it's already challenging to try to understand, for example, um, life in the towns in the UK up north, for example. It doesn't come naturally necessarily, but I try in as much as I can to understand their position. And when the Labour Party changed their stance to, from respecting the referendum to a what they call a people's vote or a second referendum, at that moment, I felt like the movement had been poisoned mortally. It had been inflicted a mortal wound and that we were not going to recover from that. And I expressed it by being angry and by trying to make as much noise as possible within the movement of warning them that it was the wrong thing to do. And the reason why I said that, like I supported the Labour Party anyway during the election. As you say, I could not afford to leave the Tory party, to leave the country for five years, knowing what they could do, regardless of how disappointed I was with Labour's decision to support a second referendum. But I knew that the moment Labour did that, what Labour was asking the electorate to do was effectively making them choose between democracy and prosperity. And the moment you do that, I mean, it may not be everyone, a lot of people like myself still supported Labour, but you're going to shed a lot of voters. Yeah. And that was enough to give the Tory party a majority. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. I think this brings us to a really important point here. 
that we probably more so in the modern monetary theory community understand. And that is in the United States, the Republicans, they get so many things wrong right from jump. Their perspective is wrong, blah, blah, blah. But they get some things fundamentally right with understanding, you know, that deficits don't matter. They can spend whatever, maybe at the state level, you know, the fiscal conservatism really matters. Mm -hmm. But when you come over here to the Democrat side, they get the social side of it. Correct. They're like, Hey, we want to lift all boats and blah, blah, blah. And they say these things, but then they come right around with this fiscal conservative crap that literally undermines their entire platform. And so you're stuck. You're always in this position of if I vote for higher deficits, chances are the economy will boom better. And you see a very, very unequal, very crappy economy that looks good on paper under Trump. And the flip side is, is that when the Democrats take office, they create recessions because they have this weird sound finance minded thing while they're simultaneously saying they want to give everyone health care and and they're mutually incapable of meeting the requirements that they put forward to their voters, to their constituents. And so they start off from a point of being so incorrect that it doesn't matter how aligned they are with our sensibilities on social issues, their fiscal issues destroy it. And it makes it even more painful to watch them in their ineptitude make these bold proclamations that are founded in neoliberal austerity. It's just maddening. And when I look at what you all are going through there, let's be fair. Your labor economists over there, I mean, these people are not shooting with a straight gun. They're not playing with a full deck. They are out of their minds. I watch them on Twitter. I read their stuff. And they literally do not get this. And they don't want to get it. They were part of the problem. They are, yes. Talk to me about the economists that are advising labor today. Well, most of them supported the second referendum. You know, outright, they did that. And their support for a second referendum is linked to their views on the economy and how the economic works, which is obviously not, is a view that is incompatible with MMD and you know, what you and I know. They believed, a lot of them, Paul Mason specifically, would often cite the economic predictions carried out with very questionable methods and assumptions. Assumptions that, for example, that the government would do absolutely nothing or that the government was powerless to respond to a recession, you know, or that the inflation would go up and the government would have to raise interest rates to such a ridiculous level that the housing market would collapse and everything would basically destroy itself. So these models that were done on Brexit, a lot of them were based on assumptions that you and I know to be wrong. And a lot of them are neoliberal assumptions. And yet they were picked up by lefty economists as justification for wanting to remain in the EU. So that is problem number one, that that when it came to the EU, they were happy to accept the assumptions of the neoliberal establishment that they claim to be fighting. And the second was, of course, that there was a crisis of confidence in labor and that they really didn't believe that the state was powerful enough to take care of its people in the event of a recession or or to take care of Brexit. So there was very little conversation, for example, in Parliament about 
anybody in Labour demanding that Boris prepare for a no-deal Brexit or prepare for all eventualities of leaving the EU on an economic sense. There was more demand simply to stop Boris's Brexit. And it was perceived among the wider electorate as simply an excuse to try to stop Brexit, these kind of warnings about the economy. If they see them trying to stop Brexit and then they say, oh yeah, because the economy will collapse, but then they're not actually making any efforts to try to prepare for such a collapse as if they were powerless to do anything about it. You know, it doesn't come across as believable. Well, their mind is soggy. (laughs) It's filled with erroneous things. So their decision-making is based on faulty foundations. So when they do the addition, it comes out, you know, two plus two equals four to them. But in reality, it's founded in very, very faulty foundations. And so their models are poor. Their models don't predict anything. Their models are not in any way, shape, or form real world. They don't address any of the actual problems. Their rational expectations and all these different funky, just completely erroneous things that there's absolutely no evidence they have ever worked. And yet they hold on to them for dear life. Yeah. And as you know, a lot of lefty economists, they believe that the market is the only place where value is created is in the private sector. So, What a foobar idea. <laughs> so that the premise was, the premise was that if there was Brexit and GDP fell as a result, then government would not be able to raise as much taxes or not be able to borrow as much and therefore not be in a capacity to fund public services as much as it could have been before Brexit happened. I got to tell you, reading some of these economists, I don't want to give them any airtime for their name even, but <laughs> reading their stuff and hearing them talk about, well, you know, we've got very good interest rates to finance deficits. And I'm listening to them and I'm just like, what do you care about interest? What does that have to, anything to do with financing deficits? What are you talking about? Yeah. What do you mean borrowing? I mean, the way they approach it is so anathema. It's so completely, it's almost impossible to listen to without laughing. Yeah, it is. And I'm not an economist at all. I mean, I have an MBA and that in a bag of chips gives you about $127,000 of <laughs> student debt. You know? it, these people genuinely They literally don't get the most fundamental basics of how the system works. It's maddening. And I watch you with great care, breaking out your scalpel, carving off pieces of this fallacy that they push forward. How does this work? I mean, how do they maintain their jobs? It's just unfathomable to me. It it is incredible. How much of a mind control they have over the population. It's because we don't have any. <laughs> what You've got all the good economists <laughs> over there. The big names here on the left all seem to be in agreement of these kind of, of the market as the primary sort of value generation and austerity and government having to borrow to spend, you know. They don't contradict each other at least and they all seem to be pretty much in agreement. So... You know, somebody like me without a degree comes along and says, no, you're wrong. We'll be fine after Brexit. Depends on us. Depends on what the government does. And, you know, if you are a 
an activist who hasn't heard of economics before, who are you going to trust? You know, you're going to trust the people with the books written and the Guardian articles and with the authority that the establishment grants them. You're going to do that. You can't blame people for doing that. But it does mean that, you know, I hold them greatly responsible for luring the labor movement into a remain position or into a position where it's defending the old guard. But most people don't necessarily understand how the two are connected, how this vision of the economy is connected to then support for the EU. You know, I think I'm fundamentally heterodox in general. I listen to Tool. I listen to Rush. <laughs> I listen to long music that, you know, probably bores people to death. The complicated rhythms, the complicated time signatures. I can't stand pop music. So I'm naturally given to heterodox thinking. And so for me, being a rebel, being a metalhead, being a guy that doesn't just go with the flow, it was easy for me to not have to go with the flow because I never go with the flow. And when I heard of MMT, mm -hmm. it was a challenge. Let me be clear. It wasn't like I just walked in and said, oh, makes sense. Oh, psh, no big deal. I mean, when it hit me, having been trained classically, having gone through grad school and having to study the garbage that passes for economics, it was a lot of unplugging. And I started at a libertarian side, so I got to hear the Ron Paul of the world the sound finance and the metalist perspective of currency and the gold standard thinking. And it did take some effort to unplug me, but it wasn't because I was resistant because it was difficult for me to understand. I connected the dots in the other way yeah. and I had to unconnect the dots. And there was a lot of dots that had nothing to do with economics from which person championed what idea. And it's like, oh my goodness, I was very pro Reagan what does that mean? And I have to <laughs> unpack that. So there was an incredible amount of unpacking that had next to nothing to do with MMT, though MMT served as the catalyst for that exploration of yeah. what my changes were going to be. And I look over there at the UK and thank goodness for the Gower Institute, Gims and you and Bill Mitchell, who spends an inordinate amount of time going back. He's just a wonderful man. And of course, Warren Mosler and others who have gone out there and invested incredible amounts of time, energy, the Modern Money Network and others in trying to get the UK into some right thinking, correct thinking, I should say. Talk to me about the modern monetary theory movement in the UK and what kind of a take rate you're getting and what is the temperature. Whenever I see these events, I see full rooms. It's amazing. <laughs> so there's obviously some energy, some desire for it. I think, I mean, it has been a slow progress, partly because, as I said, we don't have the great academics that you have in the U.S. You hold them all. Uh, <laughs> but I think that we're making inroads. We certainly need more organizing, that's for sure. The MMT podcast has proved popular from what I hear. And now I get even colleagues at work telling me that they're listening to my podcast and it's a little bit embarrassing. But <laughs> you, nice. I can see... <laughs> it's nice, yeah. But I can see that it's spreading and that can only be a good thing. But the, the issue is, of course, that it's not spreading fast enough, as fast as we wish it did. Now, a lot of MMTers were actually on the side of the Leave supporters and they were contradicting at the time 
the people who advocated for Remain on the basis of their understanding of monetary policy and the sovereignty of the UK in terms of using its own currency. And they understood that, you know, we could respond to any eventuality after Brexit. So I think now that people are seeing that Brexit, you know, was a necessity and that MMTs may have been on the right side of history on that, that would help. Now, as you know, not all MMTs are Brexiters, but I would say that it's a link between being an MMT and at the very least understanding the ills of the EU and the limitation that that poses. And I like to think as well that MMTs are big advocates for democracy for the very reason that they understand power and how authorities wield it through currencies and they then advocate for democratic systems of government. So I think all that plays in our favor. But maybe it's time to branch out from the just simply operational aspects of MMT. You know, this is how currencies work in a neutral basis to more going into, you know, emphasize the democratic aspects. What effects is that going to have in society in terms of your participation in society, in terms of your sense of identity, whatever that may be. So there is a scope there to grow and I would be looking to work as well to other groups within labor and activists in general, you know, who may not be necessarily MMT focused, but whose causes we can maybe help and support each other in a way as a forming networks. And I guess that's a bit like what Rohan and, and team do in the US, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. The real catch-22 of the whole democracy and the unwashed masses and so forth has always been from the bourgeoisie and the power elites, et cetera, has always been they don't know. I mean, even the church didn't want the parishioners to read the Bible because, after all, how could they possibly understand it? Mm -hmm. And here we are as activists trying to explain this very complex role of money in society. And to be fair, it's really not that complex. It's made complex by fiscal rules and all these other ideas that people have tried yes. to insert in there. But in reality, it's quite simple. And I think the obfuscation that has taken place is not by accident. I mean, I believe it was Henry Ford who said something to the effect of, Man, if people ever knew how money was created, there'd be a freaking war, there'd be a riot, people go crazy. Mm -hmm. And you look at this and I think that people have been genuinely kept in the dark. You look at the social security and people believe they pay into it. So it sticks around this, is the U S of course. And you look at many of the myths and legends that have become just core logic or part of society and the core part of the narrative that we exist in. We wake up, the sun rises, pay taxes, it, it pays for things and we go to bed at night and it does this, that, and the other. But you know, one of the things that I've noticed I really want to attack this because I think a large part of the outcome of this Brexit vote, if you will, I'm going to call it a Brexit, but I know it was more than Brexit, but mm -hmm. in this Brexit situation, the austerity that I'm already seeing, they're like, now we can tear apart NHS. Now we can get rid of these things. Now we can do that. And they're being quite bold in it because they feel like they've got a referendum. They didn't realize they had a referendum simply on Brexit, or maybe they do have a referendum to tear it all down. But once again, this is a core concern I have with giving the veil of legitimacy to our friends and labor or the Democratic Party 
who push a neoliberal agenda that is founded on austerity and founded in poor economics, to me, this is a very, very difficult period of time because we are like an island amongst a bunch of floating continents of ignorance. And we have to be delicate in some respects. And yet in other ways, as our friend Ellis Winningham has said in the past, the orthodoxy didn't come to power gently. Mm -hmm. They came to power with war. They came to power with guns. They came to power at gunpoint and knife point, et cetera. And in reality, it was violence that the orthodoxy became the orthodoxy. Yeah, but ours is more of a guerrilla war as opposed to the orthodoxy that, you know, parked its tanks in front of all the institutions. You know, it's slightly different, but I see your point. (laughs) But if you think about this, right, I mean, going back to Luther, even banging his 99 theses on the wall, Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got a situation here where in our podcast song, people are dying and they are. And you had a recent, well, recent being relative, you had a couple year old study. It came out, shit, 120,000 people died from austerity in the UK alone. And you look at this and it's like, okay, I understand you don't understand, but let me explain this to you because this is no longer just a joke. Apparently, and I could be wrong, the climate change, the IPCC report came out and said, this a couple of years back that we had 12 years. I think we're down to 10 now. Mm-hmm. And that's to not just have something in place, but to actually start mitigating the climate change. And between austerity and death and the people without health care, this is war. It's not a gentleman's game of chess. So whether it be the economic side or whether it be the political side or whether it be just a social side, the yellow vests and others, people are suffering across the board. And I don't know how to bring that to light so that people see the cause and effect. Yeah. Because to me, I think that if people genuinely understood the connection and it wasn't a loose connection, it wasn't an abstract idea. It was a one for one. We reduce spending, people die. Here's how it happens. If we could show that in a more direct fashion, I really do believe that people would make different choices. And so we go back to the democracy statement that we talked about. And we do believe in democratizing the power of money and democratizing institutions and democratizing workplaces, democratizing all these aspects of our life. Mm -hmm. But with neoliberal mindset, democratizing these things without a lens, we're just as bad off in many ways from the good guys as we are the bad guys. How do you make heads or tails of that? As I said, if I think too much about what the next five years are going to bring, it's just dire. But the issue of the climate change, it's one of particular worry. I think it's safe to assume that in the next five years, the Conservative Party is going to do little to nothing to tackle climate change. But, you know, at the same time, they'll claim that they are, as they always do. And I think there's potential for more conflict, more division, and I think they're going to mess up on the economy and there's going to be a recession soon, I'm pretty sure. And when that happens, they will scapegoat minorities, migrants, they will cause more division and in order not to be blamed for what's happening. And they will likely privatize the NHS, all of this. So it's a disaster. 
of immense proportions. But how do we get out of this frame? I mean, in terms of how angry one gets, I get really frustrated at the economists on the left, who I believe should know better and who often act out of, I'm not afraid of saying it, they act out of ego more than out of duty. And it's immensely frustrating that even now, after the general election disaster, they are all over the media writing columns about what to do next, you know, providing their advice and say, of course, putting the blame elsewhere. And, you know, there is no introspection, no humility, no self-criticism at all. They had nothing to do with what went wrong, even though they were the guys who were influencing the movement the most. And that makes me despair far more than the Tory party in power, because I don't see us anywhere near ready to tackle what comes ahead. I think that's the most painful part, what you just said. Well, members discuss what happens next and who we're going to elect as leader of the Labour Party next. And the very sad reality of what happened in the general election is that the people who advocated for a Remain stance were also the members of parliament who were in Remain seats. So they're most likely to keep their seats. And all the members of parliament who said, no, we need to respect the referendum, they were the most likely to have lost their seats during the general election. So they paid for someone else's mistake. And the people who brought us the general election ruin are now the people who are even more numerous, more dominant in the Labour Party. So the situation is dire in that a lot of members are feeling disheartened at the lack of prospective leadership material in the Labour Party as it stands. We're still seeing there may be one or two that are promising, depending on whether they're willing to run or not. But another Jeremy Corbyn, you know, somebody of that stature of not necessarily exactly the same as him, but with the track record that he has, is very difficult to find at the moment in Labour. So I think members are considering what happens now. If the Labour Party chooses somebody to go back to the Blair years and to the kind of mainstream economic consensus that they did, neoliberalism, pro-Remain party, then we're looking at a state of wilderness for decades to come. You know? And if so, then it may be the case that a lot of Labour members decide to go elsewhere and either form their own parties or form their own campaign groups elsewhere. So we'll see what happens. But at the moment, things are looking very, very dire. And I really hope that the same does not happen in the Democratic Party in the US. Well, that was what I was going to go with next. Having experienced it yourself, what is the lessons you would give to people in the United States that are listening to this as they consider Bernie Sanders and other aspects of Donald Trump? And our climate, what would you say to U.S. voters who maybe don't understand the lessons from Brexit? I would say, I think there are various lessons. I don't know if you have, you know, similar comparable experiences perhaps, but if I could give ourselves advice, 
a year ago, I would say respect the democratic process because people will expect you to and people will not respect a party that is not perceived to respect the democratic process. Second, do not turn this into a war of culture. So I'm not saying culture isn't important. There are cultural elements which are important, but one has to work through them. You cannot, you know, run over them. You cannot call somebody who lives in a town backwards simply because they disagree with you who lives in the city and then tell him, oh, well, you're an idiot for not voting for Labour or, and then leave it at that. Because if that happens enough times, then people will turn against you, against the party. And I'm all for criticizing the guys at the top. But when it comes to voters and the people whose vote I need, I hold back from that, from my frustration. And sometimes I know it can be immensely frustrating when people hold erroneous views, you know, ill-informed views when it comes, for example, economics in our case. It can be immensely frustrating. But by alienating them, you're only going to make things worse. It's definitely a crossroad that we are going to face in the United States. We still... And I'm just going to be blunt about this. The United States still has not had an effective answer to the question of how you're going to pay for it, even though people have said it repeatedly. The politicians themselves still keep coming out saying very erroneous things that further existing beliefs. And ultimately, it gives all the ammunition to the naysayers to say, yeah, I don't want to pay my taxes for that. I'm not letting you do it. No, I'll vote against you. Yeah. And it's a shame because it's right there. It'd almost be worth losing the election, so to speak, to bust this wide open so that we have a chance than it would be to protect the election and allow people to keep carrying this forward for generations because we have an unprecedented danger in climate change. We have so much wealth lost in the minority communities of America from the Great Recession. We have so many people that are in dire shape right now that the idea of allowing that lie to continue in any way, shape, or form, I believe it may be the most problematic aspect of it all. I've talked to people that you would call Tories, but they're Republicans here in the United States, and had discussions with them. And when I break down MMT, they're like, Oh, wow. I still don't want to text. Well, I hear you. But they genuinely have a different perspective. And they're like, wow, I, I got to think about that. It's far more frustrating to deal with people within your own quote unquote tribe who should know better, who should be fighting for these same things and that don't. I oftentimes find the complete opposite. Conservatives will hear that message for whatever reason easier than our own progressive community. And baffling. Also, perhaps not reducing people to simply a bag of economic needs is very important because during the Remain campaign, the Remainer's biggest argument was that I don't care what Brexit is about, it's not worth losing money for. You know, that was their whole argument. And the Leavers proved them, reiterated over and over again, that they would be willing to lose their jobs if it meant having, you know, democracy, having power over their own destiny. 
they stated it in many, many different ways. And Remainers, the most kind of ardent Remainers, didn't understand it or didn't want to understand that. They didn't see why anybody would care about anything other than their salary at the end of the month. So I think that MMT is incredibly important to help people make informed decisions in terms of what is best for their prosperity in a way that countering all this neoliberalism has actually made people vote against their interests. But also the MMT argument has to be framed around people's values and they will not always be the same. So we have to have different ways of framing MMT according to things that are important to different groups. And that means empathizing, obviously, with, you know, minorities and people who care enormously about feminism and gay rights and all these causes, but also empathizing with people that we don't necessarily have much in common. Because if they're not voting for us, they're voting for Trump, you know? That is very powerful. I love the way you ended that right there. With that, (laughs) Patricia, thank you so much for joining us again. I look forward to talking to you in the future. You're just amazing. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. That's all right. Thank you for inviting me. Always a pleasure. And all the best of luck. To you as well. Say hello to Christian. Yeah, I will do. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives. I want the truth!